This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. How do you find a new way forward when suddenly you have to, ready or not? Maybe you're relocating or having your first baby or leaving a relationship. Just starting or just starting over. On the road to somewhere, we talk about all of it, getting really honest. And we definitely laugh our way through it. That's the beauty of this journey. I'm Lisa Oz. And I'm Jill Herzig. Join us as we navigate our own big life changes on our podcast, The Road to Somewhere. Listen to The Road to Somewhere on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Happy Saturday. Uh, Okay, true confession. Uh, In part, because there is a new Star Wars movie, I have droids on the brain really bad. So it seemed like a good time to revisit an episode about mankind's early attempts at automata. This episode from 2013 looks at five different historical inventions that very loosely fall into the discussion of early robotics. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm willing to bet, Tracy, that when you hear the term robot, mm-hmm. uh, you think of things like Honda's Asimo or the iRobot Roomba that might tootle around the house tidying up floors. I think of the bad robot. <laughs> Little TV placard. Yeah, from J.J. Abrams' production company. Yep. Um, But there were actually, way long before Czech playwright Carol Kapik coined the term robot in his 1920 play R.U.R., which stood for Rossum's Universal Robots, uh, there were mechanized creations, automata, that were being created without electronics or computers. And many were, you know, fairly simple, but they really paved the way for robots of today. So if you do a search for first robot or earliest robot online, you're probably going to find all kinds of different conflicting answers. Some of them are philosophical, some of them are mythological, and some of them are religious. Uh, We know that clockwork devices go back many, many, many years, but most historians on the subject are not really eager to pinpoint which exact one was first. Yeah, there's uh, there are too many possible answers because there are some mythological ones that aren't necessarily supported uh, with hard evidence. Those ones are a little bit tricky. Some people even refer to like the biblical story of creation as kind of a first um, almost robotics experiment sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there, it's really hard. I mean, you get into a big philosophical debate with people if you say, this was the first robot we know about for sure. Because they're like, eh, yeah, yeah, there's some other options. Yeah. So you want to do that. And some of them are so far back in history that the substantiation for them is just not 100% clear. Right. 
And we're going to look back at the early history of mechanized beings and clockworks and steam-powered mini-marvels. Uh, so you're not going to hear us talk about the DARPA Big Dog or the Mars Curiosity rover. We're going incredibly old school with this list. So nothing past the late 1700s. And we have just selected five for the sake of podcast length. But of course, that mean, leaves out many, many others because there really are many more examples of this than I think many people realize. So think of this as just a sampling of some of mankind's ventures into automated beings. And really, I'm telling a fib when I say it's five. It's sort of five instances, but some of them feature more than one yes. automata. So it's going to be fun. We're fudging our numbers, but we're <laughs> doing it with a good heart. Yes. Uh, and we're going to start with one that is not easily substantiated. We're going off of one text, but it's important. And that's Yanshi's Automated Man. So the first one is in China. The reference to it can be found in a 3rd century BCE Taoist text. In the course of this text, a story is told of King Mu of Chu, who reigned from 976 to 922 BCE. In it, this so-called artificer presents an automated man to the king. In his book, Science and Civilization in China, Volume 2, writer Joseph Needham quotes a translated text about this automaton. And in his quote, he says, The king stared at the figure in astonishment. It walked with rapid strides, moving its head up and down so that anyone would have taken it for a live human being. The artificer touched its chin and it began singing perfectly in tune. He touched its hand and it began posturing, keeping perfect time. As the performance was drawing to an end, the robot winked its eye and made advances to the ladies in attendance, whereupon the king became incensed and would have had Yan Shi executed on the spot had not the latter, in mortal fear, instantly taken the robot to pieces to let him see what it really was. And indeed, it turned out to be only a construction of leather, wood, glue, and lacquer, variously colored, white, black, red, and blue. Examining it closely, the king found all the internal organs complete, liver, gall, heart, lungs, spleen, kidneys, stomach, and intestines. And over these again, muscles, bones, and limbs with their joints, skin, teeth, and hair, all of them artificial. The king tried the effect of taking away the heart and found that the mouth could no longer speak. He took away the liver and the eyes could no longer see. He took away the kidneys and the legs lost their power of locomotion. The king was delighted. So, and that's an often referred to text when people talk about the history of robots. And we don't have evident, hard evidence of this automaton, but it's significant that it would have been mentioned in a historical Taoist text that refers back 700 years. Uh, it evidences this fascination with mechanical beings going way, way, way back into ancient history. So early. Yeah. I would be delighted too if I were the king. <laughs> Who would not? Uh, so that's our first one. And the second one is uh, a little more recent than that. This one was a pigeon created by Archytas of Tarentum. And Archytas was born around 428 BCE in a Greek-controlled territory that's now part of southern Italy. He was a very accomplished man. He was a philosopher, a mathematician, an astronomer, a statesman, and a commander-in-chief. And sometimes he gets called the father of mechanics. He's said to be the most advanced of the Pythagorean mathematicians, and he classified mathematics into four divisions, geometry, arithmetic, astronomy, and music. He was really influential in his time. And Archytas also influenced the work of Plato and Aristotle. In fact, he's said to have rescued Plato from Dionysus 
II. But historians are generally pretty quick to point out that the relationship between Plato and Archytas was a complex one. It was pretty complicated. They had similar stances on many philosophical issues, but they also had some pretty obvious disagreements. But for today's interest, the accomplishment of Archytas that's the most relevant is a mechanical bird. This bird, which he called simply the pigeon, was suspended at the end of a pivoting bar. It moved in revolutions around the bar, uh, either using a jet of steam or compressed air. And while the bird, which was created somewhere between 400 and 350 BCE, is often listed as a footnote to Archytas's body of work, it's really important to remember that he built this mechanism more than 2,000 years ago. So it was this very simple little robotic pigeon. Yes. Some people point to it as the first robot in recorded history, but as we mentioned earlier, it's a claim that a lot of people are just not willing to make for 100% sure about any of these. Yeah. And now there's kind of a big jump to our next one uh, because we are getting to Da Vinci, who many people know was really interested in mechanics. Uh, And so Leonardo was born in April of 1452. He's one of history's most famous men. So we all know his famous paintings like The Last Supper and The Mona Lisa and his drawings of the Vitruvian Man. So he's not really a mystery to anyone who has even a passing knowledge of history. Late in his life in 1515, he created this automata lion, allegedly to present to King Francois I. The faux feline was said to have walked forward toward the king, opened up its chest, and revealed a cluster of lilies. And while there's some lack of specificity about the original lion, uh, and Leonardo did not leave any sketches of it, he did make detailed sketches of the mechanisms that he likely used in its construction, and he left some notes as well. And in 2009, Renato Boreto, a master builder of automata, uh, used those sketches and da Vinci's notes, and he actually recreated the lion. It's Really, really interesting to watch. You can find video of it online and we'll link to some of it. You know, it's kind of sobering to watch this sample of robotics that's based on early 1500s ingenuity because it's still a pretty impressive piece today to see this. It almost looks like a giant toy. It's life size, but it's, you know, carved. So it doesn't look like a real lion, but it just it moves along and it kind of It has wheels in its feet and it rolls as its legs move along the floor and it tilts its head side to side. And it's kind of uh, mind-blowing to me to think that that was designed hundreds of years ago. Yes. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and take away lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think 
think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited, and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. (laughs) Yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's not a calm situation at all. Uh, Our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations, who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah, and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too. Leonardo also designed a fully automated man that was styled to look like an armored knight with a rope and gear mechanism to raise and move the limbs. But there's no record of this one actually being built. Italian robotics historians have also constructed a machine based on these designs. Yeah, it um, it can't do quite the amount of moving on its own that the lion can, which is why we focused on the lion for this one. But I thought that the, um, the armored man should get at least a mention. And then we get to a couple of entries that are really really mind-blowing. The first is Vokensen's Flute Player. And like I said, this one is uh, kind of a twofer. It's not really just the one. We're going to talk about his famous duck automaton as well, which when I have mentioned to our colleagues that we were working on this podcast, everyone asks about the duck. And I just kind of shrug. We'll get there. (laughs) So Jacques de Vokensen was born in Grenoble on February 24th of 1709. And he was the youngest child of 10 Uh, born to a glove maker and uh, a devout Catholic wife. And the story goes that Jacques was obsessed with mechanical things at a very young age. Uh, He studied with the Jesuits as a youngster. He even entered a monastery at the age of 16 as a means of supporting his scientific studies, because at that point his father was gone and his mother couldn't really just pay for him to play in his uh, mechanized world. And then later in 1728, he left the monastery to study medicine and anatomy in Paris. And throughout his life, Vokensen was inspired by medical science and his passion for and insight into the workings of anatomy garnered him several patrons that supported his work through the years. His most famous automaton was a gold-plated copper duck. And what a duck it was. It could do many of the things real ducks could do. It could it could quack and drink water and flap its wings and mimic the digestive process, reminding me of many novelty items <laughs> owned by my grandfather. So, yes, it's the famous pooping robot duck. <laughs> Which everybody knows about. Uh, you know, it's one of those, like, when you go, oh, ancient robots, they go pooping robot duck. You're right. Like, yes. <laughs> In a letter written to the Abbey de Fontaine, 
he wrote, My second machine, or automaton, is a duck, in which I represent the mechanism of the intestines, which are employed in the operations of eating, drinking, and digestion, wherein the working of all the parts necessary for these actions is exactly imitated. The duck stretches out its neck to take corn out of your hand, it swallows it, digests it, and discharges it digested by the usual passage. And I, I feel compelled to know it didn't actually digest it. it. There was no chemical breakdown of whatever you handed it. You could hand it buttons and it would, those would pass through its automated little system. And I think w when modern ears hear it, they think of it as this kooky novelty thing. But really, he was trying to represent a full um, anatomical being. Like to him, it was more about the science of and study of you know biology than it was like look my duck poops so right <laughs> not so much to be something you would buy in the back of a Spencer Gifts right but that duck was actually created to boost attendance at an exhibit of another of Vokensen's works which was his automatic flute player the flute player was allegedly conceived in a fevered state while he was ill a famous marble statue by sculptor Antoine Coiserveau was the inspiration for the shape of the figure Although Vulcanson's version was made of wood and then painted to look like marble. And this figure was 5.5 feet tall, which is about uh, 1.7 meters. Uh, and in the modern book, Living Dolls, A Magical History of the Quest for Mechanical Life, Gabby Wood writes of the mechanical flute player, Nine bellows were attached to three separate pipes that led into the chest of the figure. Each set of three bellows was attached to a different weight to give out varying degrees of air, and then all pipes joined into a single one, equivalent to a trachea, continuing up through the throat and widening to form the cavity of the mouth. The lips, which bore upon the whole of the flute, could open and close and move backwards or forwards. Inside the mouth was a movable metal tongue, which governed the airflow and created pauses. This automaton breathed. Which is cool. It's really cool. Um, it, it's an incredibly complex design. And of course, uh, you know, the flute is a hard instrument to play when you're an actual human. So he had to do something tricky. Yes. So borrowing from his family's roots, he gave the flute player's hands a skin covering to mimic the soft touch that you need to play a flute. That's a tricky in instrument to master, even for people. And his mechanoid minstrel could play 12 different tunes. And this flute player went on display uh, on February 11th of 1738. And the cost of entry to see this marvel was roughly equivalent to a week's worth of wages for the av average manual laborer. So this was a serious moneymaker because people were paying that to go see it. I mean, it was too fantastical to skip, uh, which is why when his, the attendance fell off, Vokensen added the duck to the exhibit as well as another piece called the tambourine player in an effort to bring audiences back and keep the money flowing. He sold off his mechanical creations in 1741 and at that point became France's inspector of silk manufacture. His adventures in that job could really be their own podcast. They really could. He really sort of revolutionized looms. Um, but the flute player and the other automata changed hands several times. And the flute player was last seen in the possession of Gottfried Christoph Beres, doctor to the Duke of Brunswick. And then he disappeared from history after the doctor's death. Uh, the duck turned up a couple more times and... Uh, there are allegedly, there are pictures of it or something that's very much like it that you can find online. But the flute player, we don't, we don't know where it landed, which is a pity because I would really love to see how that works. Right. 
And then for our final entry in our list of five instances, there are actually three pieces in this. But uh, they're quite marvelous. Yes. They are the work of Pierre Jacques Edrez, who was born on July 28, 1721 in Switzerland. His family was primarily involved in two modes of employment, farming and watchmaking. And in 1738, Jacques Edrez opened up his own watch shop in Le Chat de Fonds. And initially he specialized in pendulum clocks, but eventually he turned his attention to automated mechanisms and eventually began to sm- sell small automata to his special clients. I also feel like we should mention that he is, it's kind of a side note, but he's often credited with creating the wristwatch. So he was very much into shrinking mechanisms down, yeah. which plays into his work in automata. In 1774, he and his son Henri-Louis and a clockmaker, Jean-Frédéric Lachaud, presented their three creations, which are still considered to be marvels of mechanical engineering. The musician is the first one, and it's a female, and um, she plays an organ. And it's not an actual organ. It's a custom instrument that looks like an organ. And she will bow at the end of her performances, uh, and she plays five different tunes. And the mechanical works are actually all concealed beneath her gown, but her fingers move super briskly, and they tap along at the instrument's keys. And it's really quite something to watch. The draftsman can draw four pictures, and he'll also blow dust and graphite off of his page. 27 Club is a new podcast about famous musicians who died prematurely and sometimes mysteriously at the age of 27. This new serialized podcast is hosted by me, Jake Brennan, creator and host of the hit music and true crime podcast, Disgraceland. My new show covers the lives and sometimes mysterious deaths of famous musicians who died at the too soon age of 27. Season one will feature Jimi Hendrix, an artist whose short career burned fast and refuses to fade away. Jimi was born on the 27th day of November and died 27 years later. In between, he lived a fascinating and highly dramatic life filled with wild exploits. Just like Jim Morrison, just like Kurt Cobain, just like Janis Joplin, the Grateful Dead's Pigpen, Robert Johnson, Amy Winehouse, the Rolling Stones, Brian Jones, and others who will all be featured in future seasons of the 27 Club. Season one of the 27 Club podcast on Jimi Hendrix, like all seasons of the 27 Club, contains adult content and explicit language. You can listen to the 27 Club on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Watch out for your ears. The draftsman looks more like a little boy, and he looks almost identical to the third one, which is an automaton that people uh, sort of hold in this extremely high regard because it's really quite a marvel. It's called The Writer. And it's, um, to my mind, and I think the mind of, of many other that others that study this subject, it's the most impressive of the three because he can write as many as 40 letters in sequence. And because he is built with a series of coded gears in his back that can be moved, he can actually be programmed to write new sequences. His messages aren't static. Uh, And he'll dip his pen in an inkwell so the ink needs to be refreshed whenever he writes. And he carefully scrawls out the program message onto paper. And his eyes actually follow his pen as he's working, which is sort of amazing and wonderful. The fact that this one can be programmed to do different things would probably put him higher on the list in like the nitpickers list of robots because uh, one of 
in terms of today's terminology, one of the hallmarks of robotics is that these are programmable things, yes. not just things that work on like a remote control or some kind of tether. Yeah. Uh, and Jacques Edraz would take these automata around with him on tour while he was visiting wealthy families. And he would, you know, have them do their little activities and show off. And then he would use those charms to sell his high-end watches and smaller automata to his elite clientele. And he would also book them into hotel rooms and then charge admission for people to just come and see them. And the Jacques Edraz name is still famous for its watches. Um, just as Paul Poiret, who we discussed in a previous podcast, brought branding into fashion houses, Jacques Edraz did a similar thing, and he understood the idea of building a brand in his industry, uh, and his touring automata were part of that brand. Today, this trio lives in the Museum of Art and History in Switzerland, and they all still work, which is a testament to the extraordinary engineering and skill that went into their creation. Yeah, those are other ones that you can see lots of video footage of online. Yeah. Uh, you know, people carefully programming them. And so, uh, I've noticed in some of them, the writer, he's a little um, squeaky in some points. They have to scoot the the paper along for him a little bit because mm -hmm. the paper actually gets kind of moved on this little um, carrier that goes back and forth underneath his hands. But generally, he's still, I mean, they're all still in great working order and pretty amazing. And I feel like um, we should mention as we wrap up, we're not going to talk about this one, but uh, I know people will ask why we didn't include it, which is the Karakuri Ningyo, which are Japanese automata uh, that are generally referenced from like 16th through early 19th century. And I really think they deserve their own podcast. So stay tuned. Uh, it would be weird to talk about robots and not mention Japan at all. So I wanted to make sure we at least pointed those out. Uh, they also kind of go past the point in history where we wanted to do the cutoff. Not so much the early a little later than early. Some of it's in this realm that I was talking about, but it goes on a little bit further. And there are many different types. And I feel like they just, they deserve their own whole little discussion because they're really quite amazing. But uh, those are, like I said, a little sampling of historical robotics and automata that I just, I think it's sort of beautiful and wonderful that going back these thousands of years, we've always been obsessed with creating sort of mechanized versions of ourselves and other natural elements of the world. Right. And a lot of these remind me of stuff that happened much later or things that, that later would not have been quite so impressive. Like yeah. the, um, you look at the movie Hugo and the book that it was based off of, like that was a much more recent era mm -hmm. of, of clockworks and steam-based things and, and automata that could write things. Yeah. Um, and this uh, predates those sort of things by some hundreds of years. Yeah. It's very, very cool. So that's historical robots. We'll hopefully do more perhaps in the future in addition to the Japanese ones. It's because robots are awesome. They're really cool. I also, as, a, as we're reading this, I, I just... Like every description sort of could have ended with the sentence. And then they all came to life and the doctor <laughs> had to come and save us. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us for this Saturday classic. Since this is out of the archive, if you heard an email address or a Facebook URL or something similar during the course of the show, that may be obsolete now. So here is our current contact information. We are at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com, and then we're at Missed in History all over social media. That is our name on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Pinterest, and Instagram. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. We are going to Italy. After the success of last year's trip to Paris, we are planning another similar trip, still with defined destinations, this time to Rome and Florence. Yeah, we are going to spend a week exploring some amazing things. We're going to have city tours of both Rome and Florence. We're going to see the Roman Colosseum, the Vatican Museum, and the Sistine Chapel, St. Peter's Basilica, Vatican City. This is just a tiny fraction of all the stuff we're going to get to do. Yeah, it's May 14th to 21st, 2020. And to get more information, go to defineddestinations.com and scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric here to let you know that my podcast, Next Question with me, Katie Couric, is back for its second season. I'll be diving into some big issues like this country's devastating maternal mortality rate, the rise of astrology, and a little thing called the presidential election. Listen to Next Question. It comes out every Thursday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows.